Honorable Minister of State, Shri Rajwardhan Rathor, the Chairperson of Prasar Bharti, Shri Surya Prakash, the Member of the Prasar Bharti Board, Shri Anup Jalota, Shri Vikram Bahal, ladies and gentlemen. It's indeed a privilege for me to be invited to deliver the Sadar Patel Memorial Lecture this year, which will be broadcast on the All India Radio as it conventionally is on the 31st of October this year. As time passes by, the contribution of greatness of Sardar Patel is increasingly felt almost by the day. An unquestionable first-rank leader of the freedom movement, I think the best in the Sardar was to come immediately after independence. He didn't live very long after independence, just about two and a half years. And in that short period, this country owes its present geography literally to him. The challenges we faced both in the transfer of power and the integration of states, two subjects which he handled immediately upon independence, both very well documented by V.P. Menon in his two legendary books, actually throw light on the greatness of the Sardar. He persuaded people. He influenced the rulers. And as is said uh, in our convention, he pulled out every card in order to ensure that India attains its present geography. The manner in which he handled Junagadh, the manner in which he handled Hyderabad, Travancore, Cochin, Bhopal. These were not easy states to handle in the process of integration of the states. And before he left us, literally within a matter of months since independence, India had acquired that one identity. If Gandhiji had probably the greatest contribution in the independence struggle, I have not the least doubt that the integration of this country and its present geography, the largest credit, goes to the leadership of the Sardar itself. And yet he was not uh, a highly glamorized personality. Not many knew his entire background. I asked uh, a group of my political colleagues the other day as to what their impression was as to which profession he originally belonged to. And because of the famous Satyagraha, they thought he was a farmer. He was actually one of the most distinguished barristers of pre-independence India. And unlike his other colleagues, a practicing one at that. They realized only in the 1970s that there was no official biography of the Sardar. Till Sri Rajmohan Gandhi was uh, requested by the Sardar Patel Trust to author his biography. And in the opening chapter, he mentions that the greatest challenge was for him to find out the photograph and the name of Sardar's wife. Since unquestionably he had not been uh, one of those who was officially glamorized. And he explains the details of uh, the research that he had to do to find out her name, which he finally did discover. But nobody could ever produce a photograph of the wife. And therefore that's never available. And I think it's a fitting tribute to him that as time passes by, his greatness and contribution is more and more realized in Indian society. I'm conscious of this fact, as you mentioned, that this uh, lecture in his memory, though most of us thought he was India's first home minister, he was also India's first INB minister, which has been dedicated to his memory, has been delivered by very distinguished speakers in the past. Mr. Vikram Bahal mentioned that uh, the first this one was delivered by Shri C. Rajgopala Charya. Thereafter, the, amongst others who have delivered the lecture is Dr. Zakir Hussain, President Abdul Kalam. And I'm conscious of the fact that I am completely unequal in that task to most of them. 
particularly on a subject which itself has now become uh, a puzzle in itself. A puzzle because uh, you start uh, with one of our most cherished fundamental rights of free speech, the changing landscape and restrictions to a right. And ordinarily, restrictions are never popular subjects. They are considered an erosion of the right. They are considered, uh, at times, even retrograde. And in today's world of technology, even impossible to implement. Many believe, and I am one of those who do believe, that the age of bans is now over. It's literally impossible, if not very difficult, to implement them. And therefore, an academic understanding of the subject would be extremely necessary. If I go back to the days of the Constituent Assembly, the present Article 19 was then uh, in the draft constitution, Article 13. And when it was designed as freedom of speech and expression, I don't think anybody had any doubt about retaining that as a fundamental right. The debate, however, was, should there be a separate right for the media? The media was extremely important. One of the members, uh, Sri Devendra Sarup Seth, actually proposed that media must be a separate fundamental right. And a large number of members then grouped up and suggested a fundamental right which would not only be free speech or expression, but also include phrases like thought, worship, publication, and press. The choice, therefore, was should the phraseology of the Constitution be extremely crisp and specific, or should it be very long-winded? Mr. Ayangar and Dr. Ambedkar then had to intervene, and there are detailed, uh, very explicit speeches by them as to how the phrases speech and expression would actually cover each of these fundamental rights. And therefore, there was no necessity or need to incorporate each one of those other expressions which were being mentioned. The next question was, is it an absolute right or is it a right subject to reasonable restrictions? Now, this obviously was a case in the context of each one of the fundamental rights which was uh, included in Article 19. But the political thought which went behind the craftsmanship of the article obviously had to concede, and rightly so, that the right is not absolute. The right is subject to reasonable restrictions. But then is the right subject to reasonable restrictions or must the reasonableness of the restriction itself be defined? Because if there is an abstract phrase like a reasonable restriction, its width and ambit could be very large. And therefore, the craftsmanship of the Constitution was that as far as Article 19.1a, fundamental right of free speech and expression, was concerned, it was subjected to a reasonable restriction. But these could not be any generalized reasonable restrictions. These were specifically defined reasonable restrictions with which there must be an excess. And that is where 19.1a became different from the other fundamental rights. So all other fundamental rights had reasonable restrictions, quite general and vague, from Article 19.3 to 19.6. But the original constitution had reasonable restrictions, which were very specific. So the reasonable restriction had to have, be by law, and that law would relate to only the following libel, slander, defamation. Now, this would be one category itself. Contempt of court or any matter which offends against this decency or morality, and the next phrase was important, or undermines the security of or tends to overthrow the state. So only those reasonable restrictions were possible which 
were A, reasonable, B, imposed by law, and C, had to have relationship with either one of the defamation offenses, contempt of court, decency morality, or security of the state, or which undermined the security of state, or would overthrow the state. Now, when the constitution was put into practice, what if somebody was not going to overthrow the state, or indulge in an act of sedition, or a threat to the security of the state, but made a statement, let us go and set the legislature on fire? Did he have a right to say this? And therefore, the very first amendment to the constitution they realized that the phraseology required to be changed. So in the very first amendment to the constitution itself, these phrases were changed. And the phrases became reasonable restriction to be imposed by law on the exercise of the right conferred by the said subclause. The word undermines the security was changed and was replaced by the word in the interest of security of the state. For some reason, a second restriction was brought in. Friendly relations with foreign states, public order, which was not there earlier, decency, morality, contempt, defamation, and another new one was introduced, or incitement to an offense. So in 1952 itself, the very first change that was made was that the word undermines the security got replaced by the words interest of security, public order, friendly relations with neighbors, and incitement of an offense became a ground for reasonableness as far as the offense is concerned. Now, this these are the restrictions which from recorded. the early 1950s have always continued. The few important factors in this to be noticed are, one, that free speech and expression got a preeminent right. It's been more preeminent than other fundamental rights because in this context, as I've already mentioned, the restriction had to be specific in character. The second important aspect of free speech has been that we've seen the ups and downs of other fundamental rights. We've seen other fundamental rights being strengthened, being weakened. For instance, personal liberty and life got significantly weakened during the emergency. The right to free trade itself in the era of regulated economy itself got weakened by several steps. But as far as Article 19.1a, free speech and expression has been concerned, a broad judicial policy has also been that with every judgment, it broadly has been strengthened and never narrowed down. So a national policy of expanding and strengthening the right itself has continuously existed over a period of time. So if we look at the important aspects of the right, how it has been indirectly supported, if I leave out the earlier two cases of uh, Ramesh Thapar and Bridge Bush, some of which were the licensing cases, can you impose an excessive license fee on a newspaper? They said, no, you can't. The wage board case in the 1950s. Can it impose an unreasonable burden on a media organization? So the unreasonable burden itself uh, was considered oppressive of Article 19.1a. I think one of the most important cases, which will even have significance to some of the issues of the current generation which arise, how should a newspaper be priced or a media organization be priced? Can you regulate costs? Can you regulate advertisement costs? So the price page policy. Now this was, uh, price page policy was uh, proclaimed in 1960, where the price of a newspaper depended on the thickness of a newspaper. And this was because newsprint used to be in short supply, and therefore, in that age, they decided to impose it. Now this was struck down. 
and it was struck down essentially on the ground that if you compel that the right to circulate an ex free speech is also a part of free speech. So any imposition of a restriction on the right to circulation is a restriction on free speech. A very important ingredient in this aspect came, can you deal with a commerce of a newspaper or a media organization separately as a part of free trade? Or will that also constitute a part of free speech? And in the 62 case, they made an observation saying, any measure in which a media organization is compelled to raise its cost and therefore its circulation goes down, this itself impacts on free speech. So the right was further expanded. Restrictions on importation of newsprint. Now, essentially a commercial matter. But this could uh, impact on the quantum of newsprint to be consumed. And since the quantum of newsprint would not restrict on news itself, so the argument of the state was, in early 70s, so cut down on your advertisements. There's a very interesting speech in the Constituent Assembly by both Ramnath Goenka and Deshbandhu Gupta, who had once said that a time would come where censorship would be a crude form of putting an imposition or a restriction on newspaper. A methodology of controlling them would be to pinch their pockets. The moment you pinch their pockets, you prevent them from exercising the right of free speech. And therefore, this exactly came up in the 1972 case, where cut down on your advertisements because the country is short of foreign exchange and therefore we cannot afford to buy newsprint from outside. This was the argument which was given. Now, even this was struck down as violative of free speech because the quantum of news that you publish is dependent on the volume of advertisements that you get. Therefore, if you restrict the volume of advertisements itself, that itself becomes an unreasonable restraint as far as free speech is concerned. And I think the most uh, important landmark in this was the customs duty case. In the early 80s, the government imposed an excessive amount of customs duty on newsprint. And since there was newsprint shortage in India, newsprint had to be imported from outside. And the argument of the government was, taxation is a sovereign power. And the power of taxation being sovereign, we have a power to impose whatever taxes we want on any commodity. And newsprint, therefore, is a commodity. Now, can a media organization ever claim that I have immunity from taxation? Obviously, the answer was no. Nobody can claim he has an immunity from taxation. But if the object of that taxation is either to make the publication impossible or the real purpose of the taxation itself is not revenue but to attack free speech, and then they laid down a third proposition following the U.S. Supreme Court in Grosjean's case, that the taxation on a newsprint or any commodity which is relevant for exercise of free speech, and today it will extend to social media, to electronic media, and to other modes of free speech, that taxation will have to be reasonable. In the case of any trade or business or profession, a taxation would be struck down only if it is confiscatory in nature, that it makes the business impossible. But in the case of a media organization, if adversely impacts on the right to free speech, that is, it makes it excessively costly and prohibitive, a tax itself is capable of being challenged as invasive of free speech itself. And this was an American precedent which most other democracies had not accepted. So we went in India and accepted uh, this particular right. And I think in the entire evolution, the customs duty case in its uh, exposition of law and expanding the right became a landmark. Because the landmark was that the distinction between the business of 
free speech and the right of actual content of free speech itself, that distinction itself was obliterated and one became dependent on the other itself. I think the next very powerful uh, landmark in this was a restriction. If you remember till the 1970s, 80s when television, by this time we had now moved on to electronic media from print media. But the state itself felt that it was the sole prerogative of the state to control electronic media. And therefore, except for the public broadcaster, Doordarshan, nobody else uh, had a right to have a private telecast. And it came out of an innocuous uh, incident. And I think uh, I must uh, equally pay a tribute to a gentleman uh, who expired recently, Mr. Jagmohan Dalmia. This struck him in the world of cricket and it impacted free speech in India. He said, well, I control the cricket control board and a cricket match is my television right. Why should Doordarshan have the sole monopoly to telecast? I will telecast it through any channel that I want and I will command the price which I can get in the market. The government of India took up a plea that the right to uplink from India through the airwaves is a state monopoly. And in 1993, just 22 years ago, the government argued that if private parties were allowed to uplink out of the country, it's a serious threat to national security. Now, how that policy threat of national security was seen, I failed to understand that. And therefore, the cricket board was not allowed the right to get the revenues that it wanted and telecast through a broadcaster of its choice. So the cricket board moved the courts during one of the cricket tournaments and finally, the Cricket Association of Bengal case, the court was divided. There was a majority view, there was a concurring minority view, but uh, a resentful minority view. And the majority view, I think, was absolutely an outstanding vision, which immediately out of that cricket's right to telecast its own rights, took it to the level of free speech and said, well, airwaves are public property. Every citizen can have an access to it. The only limitation is... What is the availability of the medium? If one million people want to telecast at the same time, it may not be possible because the limitations of the medium itself are there. But within those inherent limitations of the medium, if you have a right to telecast your event, you have a right to uplink from here, you have a right to... And they elevated it to the right of free speech. And this whole television boom in India came as a result of the cricket judgment. And I think this took the right significantly forward. And the last milestone in this direction very recently has been now from electronic media when we transgressed and transformed into the social media, is the IT Act case, the Section 66A case as it's popularly known, the Shreya Single case. Now the Information Technology Act enacted several years ago, Section 66A was a very badly drafted provision. The width and ambit of 66A was much wider than the restrictions of Article 19.2. The only restrictions which can be imposed are the restrictions which are envisaged in Article 19.2. The moment you travel beyond the 19.2 restrictions, you violate the right of free speech. Now, irrespective of the medium, that principle will hold. Whether you are speaking in a public meeting, an auditorium meeting, on television, in the print media, or uh, on the social media. Challenge before the court was a legitimate one. But there are two views. 66A had two categories of provisions. The first category was those which were within the limitations of Article 19.2. And the second category went outside 19.2. So if 66A had been properly drafted to only include the 19.2 restrictions, such as security, public order, 
and the like mentioned in 1902, 66A would have been constitutionally compatible. But the moment it says it causes annoyance, it causes anger, now these are very vague phrases. And therefore, anger, annoyance is not something which is mentioned in Article 19.2. And obviously, these phrases had to be struck down for the asking. Any young student of law would even tell you this. I had, as the leader of opposition, an opportunity to discuss this in Parliament. And I had exactly raised the same content in my address in Parliament at that time, saying that 66A and some of the regulations framed therein wholly go outside 19.2. And therefore, the government must seriously think of changing some of these provisions. The court, therefore, had two options. The first option was to invoke the doctrine of severability. And under the doctrine of severability, the court could have protected the constitutional provision and struck down the unconstitutional provision. That was a logical approach possible. The court, however, said, we've tried to invoke the doctrine of severability because our first attempt is to save as much as is constitutional. And for reasons that they mentioned in the judgment, they said, severability doesn't appear to be possible in this case. And therefore, it's so badly drafted that to cut out the provision and take out the constitutional aspect and save it from the unconstitutional aspect uh, would involve rewriting the law itself, which we are not willing to do. And therefore, the court decided to strike down everything, the constitutional and the unconstitutional together. And therefore, the option only is that the restriction, if it ever comes, could only be constitutional and never unconstitutional itself. That is where today we stand as far as the evolution of these restrictions is concerned and how each one of those restrictions has been this consistently dealt with and the inherent content of the right itself has been widened so that the impact of the restrictions itself has been lowered down. There's a second important aspect of the subject. And the second important aspect is, what is this changing landscape of the content of the right? The content of the right has expanded. The medium also has changed. Now, you had a medium in terms of the conventional medium where it was newspapers, it was books, it was meetings, it was a right of speech. And the right was restricted to these areas. And then suddenly came the impact of the electronic media. Satellite itself uh, brought about a significant change. And as far as the present subject is concerned, the most significant change that it brought about was it changed the definition of news. News is no longer what you read in the newspaper next day. News is no longer conventional reporting. News is, even the restraints uh, print media used to, self-restraint it used to follow, itself got significantly altered. News was more sensational. News was what television cameras could capture. What cameras can't capture won't be news. A major Africa summit will be some news, but a young girl returning home from Pakistan will be big news because the television captures it differently. On international relations, the speeches are something which television doesn't ordinarily like to capture. It's not a grievance, but that's a hard reality. And therefore, the definition of news itself had changed. The second significant change which has taken place is that there is now a sea change between and a difference between actual news and channel-driven news. There's an actual news of things which are happening all over the world. And there's a channel-driven news. There's a news item which appeals to a channel. It builds it up during the course of the day. It restricts its descriptions of that. And therefore, you get those one or two news items which are channel-driven news. I think what is happening is that whereas the marketeers of news express their right to free speech, the viewer or the reader's right to information 
and the right to knowledge itself is also being impacted. Today, the right of free speech and expression as it has been widened in all these judgments that jurisprudentially widened is also the viewer's right to know, the reader's right to knowledge. Therefore, in the newsprint case, when the tax was struck down, an expression was used, it's a tax on knowledge. And therefore, you now have opinions that what is also important is not only the person who supplies or markets the news, but it also the viewer's right is also a part of Article 191A. So when only limited channel-driven news is delivered to the viewer, and the whole landscape of information is held back from him, I think there is a contraction as far as the viewer's right to knowledge is concerned, that he's also entitled to a wholesome news and information of what's happening across the world. I think the next important change has been the empowerment through the social media itself. And that is where I think the subject of restrictions will bear some relevance. The empowerment of the social media itself is a citizen has acquired a voice. He's also started expressing himself. He's also using the forum. He uses the forum to express his views. He uses the forum to express his reactions. Decision makers now rely on social media also to realize which way opinion is swinging. People use the social media in order to convey their own opinions and views on various subjects. And I think it's an extremely powerful instrument of governance itself. Free speech actually is an aid to good governance because aspects of governance itself are highlighted through the expression of free speech and opinion, including contrarian views. I have not the least uh, hesitation in admitting, though a late entrant over the last few years, I have been using the social media essentially to express my own opinion. And therefore, whenever you want to contribute to a public debate on some issue, you have to write your views and therefore the media organization and the, your own followers decide whether your views are worth it or not and worth commenting on it or not. And are you able to set the agenda by the own expression of opinion or not? And I think therefore there is a powerful tool. Because it's an unregulated medium, there is also a very large amount of false defamatory content in it. And uh, some content which could even do some damage to the social fabric of the society itself. Extreme views also find a lot of mention. And thereafter, you have to rely on a sense of fairness of those who participate in social media and who grasp information through social media as to their own ability to filter out information itself. Where does that lead us in the area of restrictions now? If we see the entire development of law which shows the content of the right has increased, if we see the evolution of technology, the expanse of expressing the right itself has increased, where is now the space for restrictions? The law and the constitution are absolutely clear. Those who framed the constitution and those who brought out the first amendment to the constitution are clear. First principle that they laid down was that free speech is not absolute. It's subject to restriction. Article 19.2 itself mentions those specific illustrations where restrictions are there. It's clear that the restrictions have to be per se reasonable. The restrictions can only be imposed by law. Either they must be in the original law or they must be in some new law which is enacted. And then the width of those restrictions as to what they must have nexus to. They can't be general restrictions. They must have nexus to sovereignty and integrity of India, public order, morality, etc. These are the areas which are per se mentioned. How do we in actual practice implement these restrictions? This is and I think uh, there are some which are easier to handle today. 
Let us take the conventional ones which were envisaged in the original constitution. Defamation, libel, slander. I don't think there is any difficulty about it. It's a private right. It's a private right of an individual. If X is defamed, X alone has a right to invoke the law of defamation. Why can't invoke it on his behalf? There is no larger public interest uh, impacted by X being defamed. And therefore, since it's personal to X, X himself has a right. But then the changes which have taken place. The conventional view was that you go and take action within the jurisdiction of where you are defamed. Today, technology has broken down the jurisdictional limitation. So if what appears in a newspaper also appears in its internet edition, the world itself has jurisdiction. So you can go and sue a person anywhere in the world. And therefore, the person making a defamatory statement today, it may be a defamatory statement against a person in New Delhi or Mumbai, will always run the risk if the internet edition carries it of being sued in London. And if you are sued in London, you can probably be taken to the cleaners for that. Different jurisdictions react differently. In the United States, for instance, you are expected to be thick-skinned if you are in public life. And therefore, the right to sue for libel itself is very narrow. And their suits can go on and on. But in the British jurisdiction, if you defame people, the chances of your being taken to the cleaners and being taken at a very short notice is extremely high. In India, you have a provision both in criminal law and civil law where you sue for defamation. Of course, the issue is now pending before the court as to whether the criminal defamation should be decriminalized itself or not. But that's an issue for the court to decide. I don't make, wish to make any comment on that. But at the moment, only those jurisdictions have decriminalized defamation where the process of civil defamation is expeditious and effective. Where the process of civil defamation and the remedy against civil defamation is not expeditious or effective, those jurisdictions are still going slow as far as this subject is concerned. Contempt of courts. I think contempt was originally used as a power in order to uphold the majesty of law itself. And to be fair to courts across the world, including in India, the approach to contempt has been increasingly becoming liberal. In England, courts almost do not charge people with contempt unless there is an extreme case. In India also, the law today is unless some judge becomes ultra-sensitive, and that ultra-sensitivity is not the correct position of law. Are you entitled to ask for courts to reform themselves? The answer is yes. Are you entitled to tell the courts that they are wrong? Courts have taken a view that justice is not a cloistered virtue. It must continue to suffer the scrutiny. It's only that scrutiny which improves the quality of justice. And therefore, a critical comment on an opinion of a court is not contempt. The only area where you transgress into contempt is if you say that the opinion has been expressed by a court for a collateral motive. So if you impute a dishonest motive to a court, you transgress into an area of contempt Otherwise, if you make a critical comment, even if it's for a positive purpose, for a positive purpose of forcing an improvement, or uh, as they call it, it's a challenge to the brooding spirit of law that it reforms itself in future, it's certainly not contempt. Privileges of parliament governed by a purely parliamentary procedure. In many liberal democracies, they are very liberal with the privileges itself. Just as there are aberrations in courts on the issue of contempt, there are occasionally aberrations, but once the committees go through it in Parliament, 
the issues of privilege also are significantly diluted. And therefore, both legislature and courts have now this a tendency to have broader shoulders recording. and take criticisms with a sense of fairness that you are being commented on. I had a recent experience myself where I wrote an article and delivered a lecture at the State Bank annual lecture. And it was an academic subject as to what happens in a bicameral house-based democracy where a directly elected house is regularly overruled by an indirectly elected. And I quoted the British president of the, of the Salisbury reforms where in England they refer it back to the directly elected house once. And once for the second time directly elected house uh, sends its recommendation, the upper house always accepts because the lower house is elected on a manifesto and represents the mandate. So I had to go through an ordeal of a privileged notice for showing disrespect to the upper house in India for an academic discussion on that subject itself. But then ultimately, as I said, it's a wiser sense that prevails and uh, these kind of things get dropped. I don't see this uh, as a very serious uh, challenge or democracy. Friendly relations with foreign countries is not a power which has been ever exercised and there is no regulatory law which governs this and therefore that's not really a serious issue. I think the two areas where we are concerned because of the character of India, our multicultural, multi-religious character and the sensitivities involved, relates to sovereignty and integrity, public order and incitement of an offence. And I think a number of cases that we are seeing really dwell around these areas itself. Obviously, as far as sovereignty and integrity is of the country is concerned, nobody has a right to say that I have a right to break the country. There's no fundamental right. Nobody has a right to say that I have a right to sedition, and therefore it can't be a right. Nobody has a right to say that I will incite offenses. And therefore, you have laws which deal with this subject, and these laws which deal with this subject are penal laws. And penal laws are strict liability laws. On a vague interpretation of those laws, these laws cannot itself be invoked. But if specific offences with regard to sedition, integrity of India, incitement of violence, hate speech, generating hatred between communities and caste are involved, I think these are areas which itself uh, are the more sensitive areas where restrictions... Now, you don't have preventive restrictions in too many laws with regard to this. It's only after you've committed the offence that you can be punished. One of the only preventive areas is that if there is an apprehension that there is going to be an incitement to an offence, the authority dealing with public order has a right to restrain that activity. Or alternatively... In the context of social media, where there is caste or communal trouble and there is going to be a frenzy created uh, under the given circumstances, then some time-bound restrained action, as they've been doing, that for a limited period of few hours or one or two days, you can suspend the operation where social media itself can create havoc in a situation which is surcharged with some hate speech, with the impact of which is going to be excessive. We've seen three or four recent examples in the last two, three years where in extreme cases, this restraint has been imposed. But this restraint will have to be imposed after being fully satisfied because it's a restraint on free speech that there is a threat to public order. And public order is completely distinct from law and order. Law and order is violation of any law. You can't restrain free speech on that basis. But public order is where a collapse of the whole machinery is going to take place and set the society into disorder 
then a time-bound limited restraint itself can be permitted, which normally has been permitted and which has been upheld by courts also. There are several other areas which I'll just briefly comment upon. And I think as we move forward, these are areas which are emerging. I mentioned just now that the jurisdictional principle is completely obliterated because of electronic media. When the framers drafted the constitution, they distinguished between the rights of a citizen and a person. So free speech was a right given only to a citizen. But equality, life and liberty were rights given to any person. So a foreigner has a right to be treated equally in India. He has a right to life and liberty as far as India is concerned, but the constitution did not give him the right of free speech. So if you see the language of Article 14 and 21, it refers to a person. And Article 19 refers to a citizen. A larger question is, is this distinction relevant today? And there are two aspects to it. Justice Bhagwati, in probably one of the best written judgments in post-independence India, in the Menika Gandhi case, brought in this interaction between 14, 19 and 21 and said some of these rights overlap. Now, assuming there was no right of free speech under Article 19, as a part of my liberty, I still had a right to speak. And therefore, can there be liberty without a right to speak? And therefore, free speech itself is present in both the rights. Now, we've made it one available to a person, the other available to a citizen. Can you, in today's day of electronic media, where I am entitled to read what a foreign writer writes in India, his views appear on the internet, can I say this will be banned and he has no right of free speech in India? And I think that age is now getting over. And therefore, because of the constitutional interplay and the availability of technology and the modern thought moving, I think this whole distinction at some stage, maybe not by legislation, maybe by judicial construction itself, will be, have to be revisited specifically. The second important aspect is, which we conventionally spoke in terms of a restriction, was what is referred to as the subjudice rule which you in newspapers must be frequently working, how much can I comment on a case? And I think this is a very sensitive issue. I call it a sensitive this issue is because radio in areas of public issues, I don't think the subjudice rule can ever apply. The Ayodhya dispute is pending in court. Can people be told you can't speak on the subject? Today you'll have many constitutional issues pending in court. On The NGAC is an issue pending somewhere or the other, assuming it was pending in court. Can a subjudice rule apply that there is no public comment possible? Obviously it can't apply. But I would urge you as to what happens in cases of individual culpability. On one hand, you have the media's right to report. On the other hand, you have a citizen's right to a free trial, a fair trial. And let me comment on two pending cases. You had the O.J. Simpson trial in the U.S. A trial covered live in the media, generated a lot of interest, dealing with individual culpability, and then the media created a frenzy in terms of reporting that the entire jury was split vertically on racial lines. The colored Americans felt that he was innocent, the white Americans felt that he was guilty because the victim's color, and therefore, what the truth was probably may never have been discovered. You now have a pending case excessively reported by the media where the child is alleged to have been killed by the parents. So you had the initial reporting where the child's character and the parent's character is assassinated. Then you have a judgment. Then you have a book. Thereafter, you have a film. I'm asking myself a question. Has the initial publicity impacted on the trial? And therefore, how do you balance free speech with the right of the accused in that case to get a free trial. It's a question the media has to ask itself. 
Courts normally don't pass uh, orders to that effect. If you remember in England a few decades ago, the famous thalidomide case. A newspaper of the prestige of the Sunday Times, thalidomide was a medicine which uh, pregnant mothers used as a result of which deformed children were born. And when those victims sued for damages, the Sunday Times carried out a campaign in favour of uh, higher damages. First the Court of Appeal and then the House of Lords restrained Sunday Times from publishing any article on that case because they felt that the trial was being vitiated. Now have we, one after the other, vitiated that trial itself? And therefore, these are all cases. The next issue... I think which we'll have to settle sooner or later, and I do understand there is a larger bench of the Supreme Court going into it. Media and the right of privacy. Media is its rights of free speech. A citizen has a right of privacy, which is a part of his liberty. Now, this controversy arose in the Aadhaar case because the conservative Supreme Court in the 1950s in the Khadak Singh case said India doesn't have a fundamental right of privacy. That's an eight-judge judgment. Subsequently, two judges in Raj Gopal's case said you have a fundamental right of privacy. So question, before the Supreme Court is academic, could two have overruled eight? And therefore, they are probably going to sort that issue out in the Constitution bench. But a citizen's right to privacy, which in my view is today certainly going to be advanced as a fundamental right, because it's a part of his right to live with dignity, it's a part of the citizen's right of life itself under Article 21, how does that get balanced in the interplay with the right of free speech? And therefore, is there an inbuilt restriction on the right of free speech as far as balancing it with the right of privacy is concerned? In the context of social media, I think a new advancement has taken place. How do you deal with falsehood? Because social media is a lot of information and social media is a lot of extreme views. But social media is a lot of false information. Social media can be fed from anywhere in the world. And therefore, you can have reputations being smashed and so on. And you don't even know with assumed names and handles as to who the people who are committing this act this of defamation is, is concerned. And therefore, how does law evolve itself to deal with it? And I think a very significant advancement has been made by the European Court of Human Rights, where they have evolved the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten, just as in privacy, I have a right to be left alone. From social media, I have a right to be forgotten. And therefore, if there is an unfair reference to a person, there has to be an authority, maybe a court or some other authority. The European Courts of Human Rights has held that you have a right, therefore, to move that authority that the reference to you from social media be completely removed. And that will be a citizen's protection against unsavory references to him on the social media itself. And therefore, the new expansion of this right to be forgotten, I think, will have to take place. Just last two or three points, a long-pending dispute or an issue of debate, do journalists and media persons have a right to protect their sources of information? And a violation of that right going to be an infringement itself. And I think the way the courts uh, world over have moved is the correct direction. There is no fundamental right to conceal your source. But there is a public interest which enables you to conceal your source. And that public interest, therefore, will always have to be balanced with a competing public interest. Therefore, if it's a matter of an individual reputation, the public interest uh, of secrecy of source will have to be maintained. But if it is national security... The public interest of national security will be considered much higher than the secrecy of source itself. That's how the trend of decision-making world over is moving. I think a contemporary problem and a real problem 
which is and an aberration in law which has further added to the problem is commercial news also news is commercial news also free speech in united states they've said that commercial free speech is free speech in india in the 1950s in the hamdard dawa khana they said an advertisement is, is not free speech it's commercial report. speech and therefore it gets comes under trade and it doesn't come under free speech in the tata press case in the 1990s they said no we follow the us pattern it comes under free speech so an advertisement now also has come under free speech what then happens to paid news paid news is a reality and therefore if you follow the dicta of the american judgments which tata press has followed in india will free speech also provide a right which extends to paid news obviously it doesn't sound logical and therefore this issue has not come up before the courts but if there was to be a penal provision against paid news it will have to be tested on the touchstone of whether it violates free speech or not one way of looking at it uh, has been that they can invoke the latin doctrine of rex extra commercium and saying since it's a crime it won't be free speech and therefore you will have to carve out an exception but that ambiguity still continues to exist a problem which we don't seriously have in india on blasphemy and the restrictions on free speech americans have diluted it significantly so even if you criticize uh, somebody's religion it's hardly an offense there the british are very sensitive but they are selectively sensitive so blasphemy is only an offense if it's an offense against christianity and not against any other religion so when muslims went to the british courts and said the satanic verses hurts our religions they said no blasphemy is not a right available to you it's only available to one religion i think british at some stage will have to face global criticism and change their law to this effect but in india we fortunately don't have such a provision we have a secular provision in our penal law so if you hurt and make improper references against some religion or some community then it's going to be dealt with across the board to sum up therefore we are living in a world where the right itself has been expanded the circulation and the impact of the right itself has expanded the misuse of the right also because of expanded technological facilities available is now going to continue should the state step in as far as possible no should those who express the right express self restraint print media did to a large extent electronic media does social media of course has no such editorial discretions but in a society where because of multi religious multicultural reasons there are sensitivities what do we do if somebody crosses the lakshman rekha itself what would an indian society have done if instead of the danish cartoonist it would have been an indian cartoonist i think these are questions which will continue to loom large with us and therefore we have criminal laws in provision but then in extreme cases very reluctantly so some power of restraint in larger interest that it doesn't disrupt public order and that is where those 1950 restrictions imposed in article 192 itself will have an important role to play well thank you very much for having provided me this